0: If you have uh, a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Acts chapter 2, it's going to be our text this morning, Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 42 through the end of the chapter, verse 47, and if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word today. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Luke writes, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching... and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, with with the end of the year and the coming of the new year upon us even tomorrow... We are approaching as a church what I hope will be uh, an important new year in the life of this church. Lord willing, by his grace, uh, we hope to become, it's an odd word, but become particularized as a church. And what that means is we're kind of leaving the nest, Lord willing, uh, of our mother church down in Escondido. We're becoming self-sustaining, self-governing, self-replicating. In other words, we want to be able to support ourselves financially, no longer be a burden upon uh, new life, our mother church. The Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians eleven eight, what did he tell the Corinthians? He said, "I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you." This this isn't anything new. This kind of a, of a practice. Now that that's not a, an accurate description of us as a church. For the most part, we're doing very well. Uh, but we know that New Life could probably put those funds to use in other things, maybe other church plants, other endeavors, and so. Uh, we would like to be able to free them up from their obligation of doing that. Not only that, but we hope to be able to ourselves have a missions budget, to be a church that's actually helping other other churches or other works of the gospel in spreading the gospel of Christ. You know, Just as we hope that our members will become committed to tithing, that's giving 10% to the church for the work of the ministry of the gospel, even so as a church, we believe we should tithe as well. It's, we, we do the same thing that, that our families do, and we want to begin to be able to tithe as a church, giving 10% of our own budget towards missions and things like that. Secondly, we want to become self-governing. What that means is we want to have our own local. We have elders. You know, it doesn't always look like it. We have elders, but they're down in Escondido. We want to have our own local elders here to govern our church from from right here among us. Uh, we are under the oversight and care of elders down in Escondido at New Life and that's been a, a great blessing to us but another another thing that we want to do in unburdening them from that work being an elder is hard work being an elder in your local church is hard work it's a good work but it's a hard work having to do it at your own church and other church plants uh, is even more taxing so we'd like to unburden them uh, from that we do are grateful to God for them uh, we have uh, two men who are we believe are qualified gifted and called by God to the office of ruling elder we pray and we ask that you would pray for them, for Christian and for Rob. Pray for them this coming year as we work towards particularization. And, and don't settle for that. Pray, pray that the Lord of the Church would raise up more men just like them, and that He might raise up also deacons from among us, that we might be further equipped to minister to those in our church that have needs. And lastly, we want to become self-replicating. We want to, be, we want to become a sending church, not just a receiving church. That should be every church's. Just like, what what did Paul say? He robbed other churches by accepting support from them to serve the Corinthian church, this fledgling church. Well, we want to be the church that gets, you know, don't take this literally, but robbed uh, to, to support other churches. Now, those are lofty goals, being involved in missions and church planning besides our own church plant, but that's why they're worth pursuing. And in Ephesians 3, verses 20 to 21 Paul tells us that Christ is able to do far more abundantly than all than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So, what I thought this morning was, you know, when it, when the calendar starts to turn, as it is today and tomorrow, we sometimes think about uh, resolutions we can make, you know, changes which is good that we want to make for ourselves, for our families, for our church. I thought it might be good for us. To take a look at what's probably a very familiar passage to most of you uh, in the book of Acts that speaks of, of the remarkable growth of the early church, how the early church, by God's grace and the work of his spirit, came to grow in maturity, in number, and in unity. And I think we're going to see this morning, this passage has a lot to teach you and I about how a church grows in grace, how a church grows in in grace, that should be our goal, and not just at the new year. And the, the background of this is, is the day of Pentecost, isn't it? It's Peter's sermon, the very first Christian sermon preached in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Peter preached Christ to the crowds. If you read, I, I didn't read that as part of our of our uh, reading this morning, but if you read the first uh, the first forty one verses of the chapter, uh, it doesn't seem very long. It's probably a summary of what Peter said, but he says some rather difficult things that uh, many might have found very hard to to listen to. But at the end of that sermon, what does it say? In verse 41, it says, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. God didn't waste any time establishing his church in, in Jerusalem there where it began. The King James puts it a different way, a slightly different way. It says that those who gladly received the word of God It's an idea of an enthusiastic welcome, you know, kind of rolling out the proverbial red carpet in our hearts for the word of God. I think that's a beautiful description of of conversion. You you might ask, how do you know if someone's converted? How do you know if someone's come to faith in Christ? Well, I think one of the marks of such a work of God in a person's life is that they gladly receive the word of God. they They don't hold God's word at arm's length. And they don't... Give God's word a uh, you know a, a, a sideways glance or a look as if something is you know to be judged wrong in it, but we gladly receive God's word. Does that does that describe you this morning? Do you gladly receive the word of God? Even the preaching of the word of God, as the word of God is preached faithfully, we saw from our scripture reading in Isaiah 66. What did I, What did God say? He looked. What kind of person did God say he looked to? Someone who is, uh, is humble and contrite in spirit, but also somebody who, what, trembles at his word. The fear of God is in that passage. The fear of God is not some Old Testament thing that we aren't to cultivate in our lives. Uh, our, our God is still a consuming fire, Hebrews 12.29 tells us, and we still have to worship him acceptably. And what, what is the acceptable way to worship God, according to Hebrews 12.28? With reverence and awe. A holy fear, not a terror, uh, as if we were expecting judgment, but a a, a holy fear of God. That's something we should cultivate. We should tremble at his word. We should gladly receive his word, especially as it's being preached. Well, the very next thing that Luke, the author of Acts, tells us is that those new believers, 3,000, you know, give or take uh, the number there, 3,000 new believers in Christ, they didn't just receive the word or receive it gladly, They continued in it. They continued steadfastly in it. In fact, they devoted themselves, the way the ESV puts it, verse 42, to a number of things. What were the things that this early church, right from the get-go, what did they devote themselves to? They didn't receive the word and then wander off, did they? They received the word of Christ, and they devoted themselves to it. Verse 42 says they, this, this fledgling Church, these new believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now that might not jump off the page at you, but those four things are essentially aspects of the public worship of the church. That's really what they were devoting themselves to. Luke is referring here to what we would would probably call the means of grace or the outward and ordinary means of Of grace, All four of those things, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers, those four things are related to the gathered church and public worship. And what was the result of this newfound knowledge of Christ through the preaching of the gospel, their devotion to the means of grace? What happened? They grew in grace. That church didn't just grow in number. That church grew in grace. The infant church grew in their knowledge of Christ and his word, verses 42 to 43, they grew in their Christ-likeness and care for one another in the church, verses 44 to 45. They grew in their fellowship and unity with one another, verse 46. In other words, worshiping God, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ together, according to the word of God, had a transformative effect on their lives, both individually, as families, and as a group. They didn't just grow in number. That's what we always focus on, right? We always talk about numbers. They didn't just grow in number But they did grow in number as well, as the Lord, it says, added to his church those who were being saved, verse 47. There's a lot going on in this little brief passage here in Acts chapter 2. How often do we in the church today focus on the latter, that is, growth in number, while practically ignoring the former, that is, growth in grace? We put the cart ahead of the horse a lot of times in that way. And doesn't the Lord Jesus Christ most often make the former to lead to the latter? That as we grow in grace, he often, by his grace, makes us grow in number as people are saved. People hear the gospel, believe, and are baptized, and in turn devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and all those things. So if we as a church, if we seek to grow in number while not seeking to grow in grace, can we really say in any meaningful sense that we're actually growing as a church at all? Numbers are important, but they aren't the most important thing. They don't tell the whole story. Also, verse 47, Luke adds that the church, quote, found favor with all the people. What does that mean? It means their, their godly reputation took root there in Jerusalem. As they grew in Christ, their reputation among their unbelieving neighbors grew as well. Their daily lives, imperfect as yours and mine are. Luke's not painting them as super-Christians. He's not painting the early church as perfect and as everything being great. As if you read the rest of the book of Acts, if you read the epistles of Paul, you'll know that the churches have always been plagued by problems, troubles, divisions, even heresies. And these things will continue until Christ returns. But as imperfect as they were, their godly reputation among their unbelieving neighbors was growing. The way they lived overall lined up with what they said they believed, and their neighbors noticed. Just like your neighbors, don't you know? Have you ever had this happen? They notice, somehow they, they instinctively know, without ever opening a Bible, how you're supposed to live. Once they know you're a Christian, by some magic act of God or something, they know exactly what a, what a Christian is supposed to look like, and they're usually not wrong. Sometimes they're wrong, but they're not usually wrong. They, they know what you're supposed to live like, and they recognize it when you don't. But they also recognize it when you do. That should be something we should be looking for and striving for in our own our own lives. And what was the result? Luke verse 47 says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord added even more saved sinners to his church. Really, if you think about it, verses 42 through 46 are kind of bookended by statements about God, not, not the people, God adding people to his church by saving them from their sins. That's how a church grows in grace. And when a church grows in grace, we grow in maturity in unity and even in number. According to the will of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one, the only one who builds his church in such a way that even the gates of hell itself cannot prevail against it. That's how Jesus builds the church. We want to make sure as we seek to, quote unquote, build a church that we're not building things the way Jesus hasn't chosen to build if we're going to be used by him we have to go according to what his word says and so this morning i want us to look at are we are we as church members are we similarly devoted to the means of grace and public worship and private worship of the church from week to week are we devoted to each other in love and service in the name of Christ it's not programs that win people to Christ or cause the church to grow nothing wrong with programs It's not gimmicks, it's not marketing techniques that will cause a church to truly grow, as if numbers were the only measure of things. It's the grace of God at work through the public worship of the Lord's people from week to week. That's how God builds a church. And So we want to look at at these things from this passage this morning. If you and I want to see the Lord at work in building his church, this or any other, we too, by the grace of God, must be devoted to his appointed means of grace. The things that God has appointed for our growth is what we should be focusing on. And they seem quite ordinary, don't they? There's nothing flashy about our service. One of the hallmarks of Reformed worship is simplicity. That's not always pleasing to people. We always want to add bells and whistles that God has not ordained. But may that be our resolution as a congregation this coming year, to devote ourselves to the means of grace in public worship that God himself has ordained for our benefit now, Luke gives us a pretty helpful description of the early church here in these verses, in this small passage in, Luke, in Acts chapter 2. And I think, if you're honest, he's not just giving this for information, is he? Sometimes when you read a narrative, you know, the Gospels, the book of Acts, anything in the Old Testament that tells you, you know, this such and such happened, and so and so did this and that, and this is what happened, we sometimes tend to kind of read it as if it's under a glass, as if it has no imperative function for us as if we're not supposed to take these things to heart and actually put them uh, to use in our, our lives. I think Luke is trying to do more than describe here. I think Luke is trying to tell us, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how we, how we too should approach worship. The description of the early church that we find here, I think, is intended to be an example for us to emulate today. Now, here in Acts 2, we see the early church the early Christians were especially devoted to those four things. So if you want to follow their example, I think if we want to see the same kinds of, of growth and grace in our church as they did in theirs, I think these same four things, devotion to these four things, have to characterize us as well as individuals, as families, and as a church. And they are what? The apostles' teachings, the fellowship, the sacraments, the breaking of bread, that is, and the prayers. And the first thing it says is they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. The idea of believers on on the whole being devoted to teaching or doctrine is kind of a foreign concept in many churches today. You know, I, I won't say, I won't tell you to do this, but if you were to take a casual glance at the doctrinal statement of of, of most evangelical churches in our day, uh, you will find a, a, an alarming tendency to minimize doctrine. Sometimes they don't even have a doctrinal statement. You have to guess. Everyone has a creed. Everyone doesn't tell you what that creed is. And it's a a problem, I think, when when we want to minimize doctrine, especially when it's scriptural doctrine, of course. We live in a day when the church is characterized by almost anything but devotion to teaching or doctrine of scripture. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You often very much hear things like doctrine divides. You've heard that. I hope you won't ever hear that here or deeds, not creeds. Have you heard that one as well? As if Christianity could be reduced to nothing but a moral code, or as if the Great Commission could be reduced to a social cause. Uh, These things go together. Deeds and creeds go very much together. We live in a day when churches are increasingly abandoning the biblical model for worship and evangelism in favor of what we might call a market or consumer-driven approach to ministry. John MacArthur Years ago, wrote a book called "Ashamed of the Gospel," very helpful book. And this is what he writes there. He says the experts, the experts are now telling us that pastors and church leaders who want to be successful uh, must con- concentrate their energies in this new direction. Provide non-Christians with an agreeable, inoffensive environment. Give them freedom, tolerance, and anonymity. Always be positive and benevolent. If you must have a sermon, keep it brief and amusing. Don't be preachy or authoritative. Above all, keep everyone entertained. We laugh, but that is the model of many churches today. Above all, keep everyone entertained. Churches following this pattern will see numerical growth. We're assured that those that ignore it are doomed to decline. As someone who over the years has read many a book on church growth and church revitalization, I can tell you that sounds very similar to what many of them say. You will see very little said in those books about the preaching of the word or the sacraments. You will hear about pepping up the music and doing things that sound very much like, not to be crass, but turning worship into entertainment. There's a word for that kind of worship, isn't it? Idolatry. Idolatry is not just about bowing down to statues. Is that a way to grow as individual believers or as a church, according to scripture? No, Scripture is filled with exhortations that tell us if we want to grow and be fruitful in our Christian lives as individuals and as a church, we have to become people of the book, people of the Scripture. We must be devoted to the apostles' teachings, and where are they found? We don't have an apostle. I know you might be sitting here when you read when I read that verse. You might have said, "Well, you know, Pastor, if we had an apostle preaching to us, no offense, you know, we'd, we'd be a little more, you know, enthusiastic from week to week. You know, we then we'd be devoted to the preaching, although." If you read uh, about the Apostle Paul, you think my sermons are long. He had somebody fall out of a window once because he preached so long, right? My sermons aren't that long. Uh, but now, do we have the Apostles' teachings? Yes, we do. Where are they found? In the Scriptures. And so when the Word of God is proclaimed from week to week, if it's faithfully and clearly proclaimed from the Word of God, that is the Apostles' teachings that we are to devote ourselves to and gladly receive, continue to gladly receive. There are many passages in Scripture that tell us about being devoted to the Word of God. I'll give you a few. Psalm 1, the very first psalm in the entire book of Psalms, tells us that it's the one who delights in the law of the Lord and does what? Meditates in it day and night. That's the one who will be what it says will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers. Delighting in God's word. It sounds like gladly receiving it. And meditating it, thinking about it, thinking about how it applies, what it means. Colossians three sixteen, more of a church related text, says to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now that that you there is plural. He's saying, Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly. It's not saying, Hey, believer, you know, go in your closet by yourself and just study the Word of God for yourself by yourself with an end being of yourself. that st- Individual study fine, but he's saying as a church, the word of God has to dwell among you richly. Second Timothy 3.16 and 17 tells us that all scripture, Old and New Testament alike, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How are you going to be able to do your deeds Without creeds, Paul says you need the scripture, that without the word of God, you will not be complete and equipped for every good work. The scriptures are there to equip us, to to transform us by the power of God's spirit, be more like Christ. If you want to be what you are meant to be, and if you want to do the good works that God has, has set up for you to do, you need to be in the word of God. That's what the Word of God would tell us. Well, what's the second thing? The second thing they were to be devoted to, to be continuing steadfastly, and is the fellowship, verse 42. Now, the word fellowship is a much deeper idea than the way we often use it today. We sometimes use it as just uh, social time, you know, just hanging out together. Now, that's nothing wrong with social time. I hope we all spend social time together as well. Now, it includes being together, but it also has the idea of sharing commonly something together. The Apostles' Creed includes this when it talks about the communion of saints. Now, what what do we as believers, as a church, share together? What is it that we share together? We share all the benefits of the redemption of Christ. We share together all the spiritual gifts that God has given each one for the benefit of each other. Uh, those, those spiritual gifts that the risen and ascended Christ has given each one in order for us to build each other up in the faith. You know, God gives each one of you as a believer spiritual gifts of some kind. I don't have uh, an X-ray pair of glasses. I can't tell you what yours is just by looking at you or telling you, but I can tell you this, it's not given to you for you. Spiritual gifts are given for the church, for each other in the church, for us to have something to contribute to each one in the building up of the body in love. Matthew Henry again writes this about this part of the verse. He says, they, the early church, they... Not only had a mutual affection to each other, you know, they loved each other, but a great deal of mutual conversation. And that's an old word, uh, it doesn't mean what we use it for. In a lot of the older, you know, Puritan writings and such, conversation was another way for the way you live your life. He's saying uh, that they had a great deal of mutual living amongst each other. That's what they were getting at. Uh, and it, lastly, he says, they were much together. Are we much together? Not just for an hour and a half or whatever it is on Sunday mornings. Uh, as a church, are we much together? We spend time with one another. That's what they did. They were devoted to it. They wouldn't be kept from it. We should be as well much together because we share in the greater things of the gospel. At times, we also share our lesser things, even material things, with each other when someone has a need. Some people actually use these verses in, in Acts as a proof text or sorts for communism or socialism. After all, in verses 44 to 45, what does it say? They, quote, had all things in common. And what did they do with their possessions? They were selling, selling their possessions, giving to those in need. And and Now, is is this teaching socialism? Is this a Christian proof text for communism? Uh, No. In fact, Acts chapter 5, oddly enough, tells the story of a couple who actually died because they made a donation to the church. Not really, but it's kind of the way that it comes across. Now think about that next time we pass the offering plate. Be careful how you give, right? Uh, It says Acts 5, uh, it says verses 1 through 5, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, they're doing what everybody else was doing, right? They sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back part uh, for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Peter's not saying, Ananias, you should have given more. And he drops dead. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, you lied. You tried to make it look like you were doing this great deed that you weren't really doing. That's the problem. He said, was it yours to keep? Did did the apostles make some command that everybody who owned property had to sell it and had to give it to their neighbors or some others in the church that had need? No. It was his before he sold it. It was his after he sold it. The problem was he thought he could lie uh, to God. He was under no compulsion or coercion to give it away. Socialism is not charity. Socialism is not charity. It's forced. It's forced or coerced charity, which makes it not charity at all. The believers in Acts 2 had all things in common and gave to those that had need. Uh, That was not an indication that the church was a commune, that everybody gave up their homes. It's an indication that the church from the beginning has always been a family. That the church has always loved and cared for one another, just like a family. What, what does a family do? When, when we're functioning properly, a family takes care of itself. Right? What, is, what does Paul say later on in the, in the pastoral epistles? He says that those who don't take care of their own family members, it says, are what does he say? Are are have denied the face the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's the bare basic uh, gist of what we should be doing. 1 John 3 Verses 14 to 18, uh, John writes, We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. You know, your love for other Christians is, is a, a means of growth in your assurance of your salvation. Not, not growth in your salvation, but it's a, it helps you grow in your assurance that you really know the Lord. It's an indication of God's work in your life if you love other believers. Now, you don't have to like us all. Everybody doesn't like each other, but just like family, loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he, that is Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So the second thing, just like them, let us learn to be devoted to one another in the church, to the fellowship of believers, in the communion of saints. Let it be as Matthew Henry put it there. Let us be much together in this coming year. The third thing, the third thing that the early church was devoted to was the sacraments. Now maybe you're reading that text in verse 42 and you think, Hey pastor, sounds kind of like a leap. Where do you see sacrament in there? The word isn't in there, obviously. But when it, when it says the the breaking of bread, it's not just talking about the church potluck. It's not just talking about having the occasional meal, though. I'm sure they did that as well. They weren't, you know, they weren't just devoted to eating. I'm devoted to eating. You're probably devoted to eating, some of you as well. But it, it's devoted to the breaking of bread. Most commentators take that as an indication. Of the Lord's Supper. And where do they base that on? They base that on Christ Himself in Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28, where it says, Now, as they were eating, they were already eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, what did He do? Broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And He took a cup and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins, the, the early church did not neglect what the Lord Jesus Christ gave to his church to be a sign and seal of our salvation in him. They were devoted to it. I think if there's anything that characterizes the church today more than maybe a lack of devotion to the word of God, it's a lack of, of taking seriously the sacraments that God has appointed for our benefit, both baptism and the Lord's Supper. The shorter catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that the Lord's Supper is given to us, quote, for our spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. We may not understand everything about it. We may sometimes be misinformed about it, but it's given to us for our growth and grace and our spiritual nourishment. If we're not feeding on the body and blood of Christ by faith and spiritually together whenever we can, is it any wonder that we're spiritually malnourished? Is it any wonder that we're not growing in grace if we neglect the Lord's Supper? You know, the Lord, the sacraments are also there to help us grow in our assurance. But any one thing that that Christians, uh, that we often struggle with from time to time, it's a lack of assurance. And I wonder sometimes if it's not because we neglect the Lord's Supper. A church's ministry must be centered on word and sacrament. Now, that's not what the church marketing so-called experts will tell you. But that's what the Word of God is telling us here in the book, of Acts? Are we devoted to the breaking of bread together on Communion Sunday? Do, do you look forward to Communion Sunday? I know we don't do it every week. We do it once a month most of the time. That could change in the future. But if you have to miss the Lord's Supper on any given Sunday, does it bother you? Is it something you look forward to this next Sunday? It's Communion Sunday. Sunday, I always tell our, our kids, you know, Sunday's the best day of the week. We should think of Sunday as the best day of the week. Communion Sunday is like the cherry on top of the best day. of of the week. Well, the fourth thing, the last thing our text mentions, they were devoted to the prayers, verse 42. Now, we should be devoted to prayer. Prayer is hard work. I know that. You know that. It's why we are so bad at it often, or we have such trouble with it. But notice it says the prayers. That's not a typo. Not just prayer. The prayers. Now, the use of the definite article, the word there, uh, there, uh, the word "the" there is is there to to indicate, I think that this is corporate prayer. The whole context is public worship, for either in the church and also from house to house. So they they were devoted to praying together, praying together even in worship. Prayer, this should tell us, prayer is an important aspect of worship on the Lord's Day. Prayer should be an important part, a big part of our worship now. I, I've been to churches, and you probably have as well, where there's so little prayer in the service, it's like they're embarrassed by it. They're worried someone maybe, I've fallen asleep when somebody's praying before, maybe you have too. That happens, that shouldn't keep you from praying. Sometimes we pray too long. Uh, better prayer, praying too long than praying too too short. How could prayer not be an important part of worship? What did Jesus say? We looked at this a, a little while back, when Jesus you know, cleansed the temple, overturned the tables, uh, the money changers, the temple, what, did he, what was the reason that he gave for doing that? He said, my, it's, it's written, my, my father's house, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. He quotes Isaiah. And he said, but you've made it a den of robbers. What does a den of robbers do? Seeks to take from those who are worshiping. We're supposed to be asking of, of the Lord in prayer In worship, The church should be characterized by prayer. Our worship should also be characterized by prayer. We should want to spend time with the Lord who purchased us with the price of his own precious blood, who saved us from our sins, and whom we have the promise and hope of spending eternity with in heaven forever. We should be quick to seek his blessing and help in all things. John 15.5 says, Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. When I don't pray, when you don't pray, what are we really saying? We're kind of telling God, and no, not in so many words, we're saying, I can handle this, thank you very much. I'll, I'll let you know if I need you. Well, we can do nothing apart from God. And so we can do nothing apart from prayer in the name of, of Christ our Lord. By God's grace, may he make this little church a house of prayer, and your church as well. May he work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. May this church be a house of Of prayer, May we pray in the service. May we be committed to praying together, whether it be our our formal prayer meeting on Friday mornings or whatever it may be that we pray together often. Well, all this is to say that if you want to grow in grace as a church, we have to be committed to the things that God has put in place for our growth in grace. His means, his appointed means of grace. The Shorter Catechism describes the means of grace this way. Question 88. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates, that is, gives to us the benefits of redemption? Answer, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer. Almost sounds like they were looking right at Acts 2.42 when they wrote this. Uh, those, Those are the things, it says, all of which are made effectual to the elect, for salvation. In other words, God, God, by his own choice, has chosen normally to use those simple things. Those are not exciting, flashy things. Those are things that will not impress anyone outside of the church. They don't always impress people inside the church, for that matter. The word, sacraments, and prayer. In other words, these things, the word, sacraments, prayer, and I'll add fellowship, and not our own inventions, innovations, or ideas, or how we grow in the faith, They're the divinely ordained way we grow in grace. If we neglect these things in favor of our own ideas or strategies, we might fill the pews or our chairs on Sunday. We might increase our budget, but we will not be part of Christ building his church. And where are these means of grace primarily found? Again, in the worship, the gathered church worshiping on the Lord's day. That's the primary means of grace, not the only means of grace. It doesn't mean that your own private Bible reading doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that our small group Bible studies, that God doesn't use them. He certainly does. But what is the primary thing God uses? It's the worship of the Lord, of his people on the Lord's Day together as the gathered church. As the text here in these short verses in in Acts show us, corporate worship, both public and private, it does mention from house to house, right? Was anything but incidental to the lives of these Christians here In Jerusalem, in the early church, it was the thing they devoted themselves to, and really right after their conversion. It's almost as if no one had to tell them to do it. They woke, they gladly received the word, and they couldn't wait to hear more. They wanted to grow in grace. So the public corporate worship of God's people is and always has been the primary means of God's grace in growing his people and in growing the church. Another way of saying that is to say that you and I cannot grow in the faith you and I cannot grow in grace the way that God intends to do so without each other. Without the church and without each other in the church. Hebrews 10, probably a familiar text, Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're not meant to go it alone. The church, God gave us the church for a reason, just like he gave us all families for a good reason. It seems that many churches may have lost confidence in the outward and ordinary means of grace that God has appointed for our benefit. <coughs> we try to build churches and try to build Christians by all kinds of other means, maybe more exciting means, fancier, flashier means, more attractive means, more entertaining, most of the time means. Those things may attract a crowd, but we are not called to build an audience. We're called to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's what God does through His church. And what was the result of the church's, the early church's devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers? Verses 43 to 47 says this And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, public and private, right? They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, be pleased to work these same things in us as well, not signs and wonders. We don't have the apostles with us, but work in us by His Spirit a holy awe of the Lord, a growing love and care and concern for each other, a love for being together every Sunday in worship, hearts filled with gratitude and praise to God, having a godly reputation among our neighbors, so that the gospel of Christ is adorned by the way we live. And last of all, may the Lord be pleased to add day by day those who are being saved. To Him be the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Acts, which not only tells us what happened, the things that took place in the the early church that describe the spread of the gospel and the growth of your people, but also give us little little nuggets like this in the book of Acts in chapter 2 that tell us uh, what you worked in them, that you worked in them to be devoted to your word, to prayer, to the fellowship, uh, and to the sacraments, as well, and we ask that you would work in us by your Spirit, uh, even now as we approach this coming year, that you would make us devoted to these things. Make us people who uh, are, are characterized by as being those who gladly receive your Word, who tremble at your Word, who have contrite and humble hearts, uh, and who are devoted to these things. Your means of grace in the church together. Help us to worship you in a way that is pleasing in your sight, and in a way that you will be much pleased. To, to use, to grow us in grace, to grow in the faith, to grow in the likeness of Christ. And even because of all that, by your grace, to, to reach the lost with the message of the gospel, that you might be pleased to save sinners and add them to your church, whether it be here or anywhere else. We pray all these things that you might be glorified. The name of Christ might be lifted up and exalted in us. Work all these things according to your spirit. Purify your church. Revive, revive your work, O Lord. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.